If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Focused on the facts, the Aussie Cossack on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Aussie Cossack Show. I'm looking forward to tonight's episode. It's been a massive week, a huge week. Uh, if you're a follower of uh, world politics, geopolitics, of course, Vladimir Putin's 67-question marathon will be one of the uh, discussion points on tonight's show. Uh, straight off the bat, I'd like to say, ring up anytime tonight. The lines are open. We're going to take a few questions of our own, and we might do a little bit of a Vladimir Putin-style direct question uh, scenario tonight, a situation. If you have got something you want to ask the Aussie Kozak, uh, let's play truth or dare on the phone. Ring me up right now on one 800 370 anytime during tonight's program. Tonight we'll be speaking with a uh, Syrian girl uh, who has just returned from, of all places, Moscow, Russia. Uh, something which she hasn't publicly spoken about. We're going to get the inside story on what she was doing over there, the latest on the Palestine-Israel conflict, the latest on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and the frontline reports from the battlefield uh, from Zindanov, the editor of the Slavian Grad uh, Strategy, Information and Analysis Military Channel. Uh, big fan of their channel. They do a great job in exploring uh, an, an inside story on what's being presented in the mainstream media. Uh, as we know, we can't trust the mainstream media. Thank goodness that we have uh, a huge network of colleagues all around the world who are happy to challenge the mainstream media narrative. That's one of the things Vladimir Putin talked about in his uh, direct question time, his annual uh, question time uh, on Thursday. He spoke about the fact that there are many, many, many of you out there in the West, many English speakers who are supporters of Russia. He said the supporter base of Russia is growing. And you know what? It's time to just openly say that yes we are supporters of russia and there's nothing wrong with supporting russia it shouldn't be shunned upon you shouldn't be shy uh the supporter base of russia in the west is growing i would say it's in the billions in fact uh if you just take china and india for example that's two countries uh there's no supporters of ukraine in those countries you could probably count them on one hand they're in the billions just those two countries in their population but of course our focus is on the west that's where we live and operate and broadcast and in the West, correct me if I'm wrong, but there has been a massive trend, a massive trend away from supporting Zelensky, away from supporting the Kiev Nazi regime, who are just full of atrocities. This week, they placed the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, on the wanted list. I mean, how can you issue a, a, a arrest warrant uh, on political grounds to the head of a Christian church? Uh, this is playing with fire, History will not be kind to the Ukrainian government when they do things like this. It's one thing if you issue an arrest warrant for the Aussie Cossack. It's another thing if you issue an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin or a Russian general or a Russian journalist. But when you issue an arrest warrant for the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, God himself will punish the Kiev Nazi regime uh, for such a disgraceful acts. Russia, meanwhile, is expanding its nuclear missile fleet uh, in uh, the Orenburg, Orenburg region today. Uh, work was completed on the Rex Regiment of Yasnyansky uh, Strategic Missile Forces uh, with the avant-garde silo-based missile system. All around the country, Russian missile, nuclear missile forces are uh, entering combat duty and coming online in the event of anything that might go down. It's a deterrent, as Vladimir Putin says, but that deterrent is expanding. That deterrent is uh, working, doing its job, keeping the West at bay. And it's important that that deterrent is visible. It's, it's important that it's heard. It's not fear-mongering. It's not war-mongering. It's sobering the minds of the madmen who are in charge of NATO, who want war. Russia is saying, don't even think about it. Forget about Zelensky. It's over. Some news reports this week have suggested, German news reports, that uh, Ukraine is preparing a new counteroffensive in 2024. This is a disaster. This is absolute disaster. Smart people will confirm that Ukraine is being quietly behind closed doors, subtly pushed towards negotiations. We need negotiations for the sake of the Ukrainians or whatever's left of them. Uh, it is quite a, a serious tragedy. And 
something needs to be done. It appears the only adult in the room is uh, Vladimir Putin, and those countries who have allied with him will reap the rewards of victory once victory is attained. In fact, Russia's already won. It's just a matter of uh, cleaning up the mess. And who will be left to clean up the mess? Who will be left holding the baby? People like Albanese, you watch. Everybody will move away. The Hungarians have moved away. Uh, the Americans are saying that we're not interested anymore. And we'll talk about that uh, situation uh, with Syrian girl, with her view uh, of that is, and also Zinda, because Zin from Slavengrad, he's, of course, in the United States. So we've got a international uh, panel of experts for tonight's show to talk about geopolitics, uh, confronting scenes uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, this week as Iranian Navy forces forced the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower to leave the Persian Gulf in a very tense incident. Uh, video footage has emerged of that incident. The Iranians threatened and followed through on their threat to launch high-speed uh, attack boats towards the American ships who were using helicopters to harass uh, Iranian ships. Another very close call uh, for the world. Uh, if you were watching Vladimir Putin's 67-question uh, address, uh, you would have noticed that Vladimir Putin appealed directly to people in the West who are thinking uh, about sharing their destiny with Russia, moving to Russia. And if you want to move to Russia, uh, I'll uh, repeat it on the air tonight. I suggest you visit www.movingtorussia.ru. There's a great team there that can look after you and Oh, sorry, .com, www.movingtorussia.com, should I say. There's a great team that will look after you. If you're interested, if you're from the West, it's actually not that difficult. Uh, Russia has taken a course, uh, a, a policy of actually supporting people in the West who wish to move to Russia, helping them. They'll help you in every way possible. There are huge opportunities in Russia for work, for employment, for business. Wages are actually incredibly uh, high. You'll be surprised. Uh, Russia is going through a financial boom at the moment, and it's all thanks to the sanctions. So thank you very much, Uncle Sam. Thank you very much, uh, Uncle Biden and NATO for your sanctions, Albanese for your sanctions. I'll just give you a quick example of how sanctions uh, work to benefit Russia. It's almost impossible now for Russia to send money out of the country. That's a, that's a fantastic thing. I wish they would have done that in 1991. I wish the West would have put those type of sanctions in 30 years ago. Imagine how much extra capital Russia would have kept in, inside its own borders. Because, of course, on paper, Russia is hands down the richest country in the world. If you look at uh, the uh, Mendeleev table, all the elements are available in Russia. All the natural resources, number one for oil, number one for gas, number one for timber, number one for fresh water, number one for uh, everything you can think of. If if it exists, Russia has it. Nickel, gold, uh, rare earths, uh, beautiful women. I mean, Russia is the number one place. And I know because I've got a beautiful wife uh, who celebrated her uh, names day last week. Happy names day to my wife, 7th of December, Ekaterina. Uh, and happy, happy names day to all the Ekaterinas out there. I celebrated a anniversary of my own, actually, uh, two days ago. So today, 16th of December, it was exactly one year ago, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, I made the decision to defect to the Russian consulate, and I haven't looked back since. Uh, you could say I've been living in Russia for the last one year. There you go, 365 days. What a milestone. It's, of course, uh, far from Assange, who I think he did six years in the Ecuadorian embassy. And unfortunately, uh, to the shame of the Albanese government, he continues to be incarcerated. But one year is certainly a milestone. I wish to thank all of our subscribers, listeners, uh, the station management and staff of TNT Radio, the producers, the support staff, uh, the owners, directors, and uh, all of our subscribers, viewers, Telegram subscribers, big shout out if you're watching via Telegram. TNT Radio is also now broadcasting via Telegram, by the way. If you're watching via YouTube, yes, uh, we're back on YouTube a little bit, so share the link, get it out there. Uh, but it's been a very interesting one year. As I've said many times, freedom for me is not being able to roam around to go to the beach or go to the restaurants or go out there and, and uh, enjoy life in Australia, although Australia is a beautiful country. Freedom, for me, most importantly, is broadcasting. And that's what this platform offers. That's what 
being holed up in the Russian consulate office, being able to broadcast, and nobody can do a thing to stop me from broadcasting. The police would love to kick the door down, charge in here with an assault team, but guess what? This is the territory of the Russian Federation. And some people in Australia, uh, some pro-Ukrainian voices, some uh, extreme lefties, some woke media personalities have suggested uh, that the Russian consulate should be closed. It should be uh, it should be threatened. Either hand over Simeon Boykov, hand over the other Aussie Cossack, or we will shut you down. We will take away the land, the building which the consulate is in. Well, guess what? Little known fact, but the Russian consulate building is a building and a piece of land which amazingly in the 1970s was actually purchased by Russia. It was actually bought by Russia. So that's very unusual. Most consulates, most embassies you see in Australia, in the diplomatic district here in Wallara and Edgecliff, around uh, this area we've got across the road, we've got the Polish consulate, the Lebanese consulate, the Serbian consulate. On the next street, we've got the Turkish consulate. And all of these consulates, these diplomatic missions, most of them are on an agreement with the Australian government. They're on Commonwealth land. Most diplomatic missions in Canberra are on Commonwealth land. You would have recalled uh, earlier this year, there was a big scandal where the Albanese government actually confiscated a piece of land that belonged uh, to the Commonwealth, that the Commonwealth had given uh, in a lease agreement uh, to the Russian embassy to build a new embassy building on. They confiscated that land. Now, that's their prerogative. It's their land. They've confiscated it. Bad luck. We can't do anything about it. But of course, in the case of the Russian consulate in Sydney, this actually, this actually, this actual land—it's amazing—but it belongs to Russia. So well done to those very wise uh, Russian uh, emigres and diplomats of the 1970s who uh, were smart enough, resourceful enough to actually purchase the land. And let's make a special shout out on the air tonight. I know the bloke's name who organised that—a real estate agent by the last name of Sadelnikov. It was a Russian, white Russian emigre. Uh, his brother is George Sadelnikov. He's a Cossack. He's, uh, I think he's in his late 80s now. But he's a gentleman and a scholar. He's a patriot of Russia. He's also a patriot of Australia, by the way. And he lives uh, in Western Sydney. And back in the 70s, he organized the Russian consulate to buy this uh, beautiful piece of land uh, in Wallara. Who would have known that uh, 40 or 50, 53 years later, uh, this land would come in handy for dissidents, for broadcasters, journalists who are being persecuted. Now, I do have to admit, one year, I've been very, very busy and uh, broadcasting every day. If you're a regular listener, you would know that. And if you're a regular listener and you have been listening and watching, as we're watching now on TNT Radio, give me a call. I want to hear from you. I want to meet you on the air. Say hello. Don't be shy been thinking about giving me a call on the air. This is the time to do it. This is the night to do it because you can congratulate me with a one-year anniversary on 1-800-670-310. Stay tuned. Coming up, we're going to uh, have a very, very exciting program. Uh, Syrian Girl is coming right up after this break. You're listening to The Aussie Cossack on TNT Radio. Jeremy now on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averaged around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year and we had a farm murder on average every fifth day um, but over the last few months both those numbers have picked up murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders jeremy now on today's news talk tnt radio I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. 
Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. The conversation continues. I don't believe it, and I think that's a terrible position that I am in, that I don't trust my government. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to TNT's Radio, TNT Radio's Aussie Cossack Show for the uh, 16th of December. It's been a big year. Year's coming to an end, uh, but... The year's not over. There could still be plenty of news, especially news of Australia getting itself involved in yet another conflict over the last few days uh, on social media. Hashtag Red Sea has been trending. What does Australia have to do with the Red Sea? It's a good question. Uh, you're right about that. Australia has nothing to do with the Red Sea. That doesn't stop the American government from ordering Australia, or they say politely asking or requesting. Some people have said it's a request. Some people have said they're asked, well, if you request something, usually the person you requested from has the right to say no. Uh, Australia now is being put on the spot. They're being almost forced to pull their weight, to show their loyalty, to show their support to the United States. It would be probably the first time in decades and decades if Australia was to say no. The request is send your warships to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is the most, the most dangerous patch of water anywhere in the world right now. In fact, probably more dangerous than the Black Sea, more dangerous than the South China Sea, more dangerous than uh, anywhere you can think of, the Red Sea. And someone who's an expert in politics uh, in that part of the world, it's a very difficult place to get your head around with so many different factions, groups, infighting, and different uh, countries and within those countries there are splinter groups but at least we've got a, a very good insight tonight uh, so uh, get ready and welcome Syrian girl also known as Mimi but I prefer to call her Syrian girl that's her name on Twitter with her 365,000 strong account and uh, telegram you can check out welcome to the program Mimi thank you so much I've made a mistake of making my Twitter account partisan girl even though the heading is Syrian girl. So people get really, really confused. And my telegram, Syrian girl partisan. Yeah, the confusion was, you know, was a mistake when I first came up with these names. But thank you for um, having me on the show. As they say in Cabramatta, too much confusion. Too much confusion, yes. Indeed. But it's all right. We'll call you partisan girl. We'll call you Syrian girl. Uh, the main thing is that it's got a very catchy ring to it. And is that part of your success as a media personality, your name, would you say? You know what? It was pretty simple. I'm Syrian. I was a girl. <laughs> so, Wait, what, what do you mean you were a girl? You're still a girl and you always look good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you're not a woman. You're a girl, right? You're not married? Uh, yeah. You know what? You're right. I would say I'm still a girl. Well, you're uh, still a girl. And you were a girl <laughs> that when, uh, a few days ago uh, was off to Moscow for a little trip to Moscow on your own. Yeah. A Syrian girl in Moscow from Australia. What's a the story Syrian behind that? <laughs> yeah, I should have uh, titled my trip that. Um, yeah, I was in Moscow. I was in your neck of the woods, your country. And I actually visited the place where you studied at university. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, insight. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare the drum roll. Syrian girl visited uh, the place I studied, the Sretinsky uh, Seminary, which is located on the infamous uh, Lubyanka Street. 
so so how did you end up there and how was it what happened tell us all about it i'm sure our listeners would love to know about the place where simeon boyk of the aussie cossack got his education so we had a tour of all of the uh you know orthodox churches around that area uh, one of them is very interesting it's built like an old church but it was actually built in 2013 um and it, it's massive it's huge it's beautiful uh, there's, you know, paintings all over the the roof uh, uh, of saints and martyrs. Um, some of them were, for example, the uh, royal family. I thought was very interesting. The entire royal family uh, that was uh, assassinated or executed by the uh, communist takeover is painted on the roof of this cathedral. Um, and, you know, as martyrs, essentially, including the children. Um, and it was really amazing to see something that looks so old and so ornate but it's new and it sort of represents a rise of orthodox christianity in russia and how much it has returned uh since the fall of the soviet union but in that uh, expedition of all of these churches we also stopped by the seminary where you actually study and i got to see it and it really does look like the hogwarts of Russia, I would say. <laughs> it's uh, very, very um, uh, grand and new and like both modern and old at the same time. Uh, lots of interesting paintings. Each lecture room has a different theme to it as well. I would have loved to have studied there, to be honest with you. Well, uh, it is a beautiful part of Moscow. That building which you would have visited, it's a new building. Uh, when I was studying there, I enrolled in 2008 after finishing high school in Australia. I was shipped off to Moscow uh, by my Russian Orthodox priest father. He said, you got to go to Moscow, you got to study. And I remember when I got there, this is before all those beautiful, fancy, flashy buildings were built. Uh, this is at a time where, and don't, if you don't forget, that all of these beautiful buildings and monasteries and seminaries they were only allowed to restart their uh, their purpose, their functioning, their service, to activate after 1991. So it took a little bit of time for uh, the church authorities. And in this instance, uh, let's make a special note of Archimandrite Tikhon Shevkunov. Tikhon Shevkunov. At that time, he was an Archimandrite. And the way the reason I ended up in Moscow, he actually came to Australia in 2007 uh, with a delegation to visit Australia, or to, maybe 2008, early 2008, I think it was. He flew to Australia with a delegation of about 40 Russian Orthodox clergymen. They came a delegation to visit Australia. They actually flew into Sydney on one of Vladimir Putin's uh, presidential planes. And I remember that presidential plane was parked at Kingsford Smith Airport in Sydney a plane that brought a whole bunch of these monks and priests and they had a beautiful choir, the Sretinsky uh, Russian Orthodox Men's Choir. And um, one of uh, one of the, the parishioners in uh, Sydney, uh, she said, she said, she looked, she was looking at all this and she said, look at this delegation. How can they be, how can they afford this? They are just monks. This is probably <laughs> paid for by Vladimir Putin. And one of the monks looked at her and started laughing. And I said, what's so funny? And he goes, oh, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so Putin was involved in this, um, uh, sending these delegations of uh, goodwill ambassadors, Russian Orthodox delegations to uh, the overseas diasporas. Something he talked about uh, also, the diasporas, and it was talked about during uh, this week's uh, presidential address. Uh, uh, Leonid Slutsky, the head of the Russian Liberal Democrats Party, uh, also touched on that, the importance of preserving the diaspora and uh, fighting off assimilation. Uh, anyway, back to the story. When they were in Sydney, I was a 18-year-old uh, student, just finished high school, and they said to my dad, I said, we'll take him to Moscow. He can enroll into our seminary. I was always a Russian patriot since I was a kid. And I was happy to go there. So I got to the seminary, but it was a little bit different when I was there. There wasn't so much fanciness. They, they really, you know, it does look like Hogwarts. 
It was nice. No, I, I withdraw that. It was very nice back then. But a lot of these buildings, these the ones that you've seen now on your trip, these brand new, massive, these cathedrals, these buildings. I mean, tell us about uh, the lecture halls and the classrooms for the seminarians. That you well, you know, uh, I don't know if it was like that when you went there. Um, maybe it was more rudimentary uh, and more like a monk lifestyle. I would love to have seen that part of things, but I, I saw the uniforms that you had to wear and you definitely had to dress like a monk. Um, so they have like a special room just for practicing choir practice. They have another room for learning um, languages and they have like uh, very uh, artifacts, real artifacts of old languages, uh, Byzantine language, Aramaic, uh, you know, Syriac, all sorts of uh, Greek as well, all over the walls. Um, you have a library that's very ornate. Uh, you have um, a special room with all these maps in them where you learn geography. It's it, The classrooms are not as big as you would be used to at the universities in Australia, uh, obviously because the number of students would be more uh, niche. But mm. I think it's a better learning experience to have a smaller, like a 30, 40 person lecture theater or classroom is actually, um, you know, you can interact with the professor better that way. I think that that's why, where we should move. It, it looks like a very nice place to study, to be honest. Well, look, there, was a, there was only 27 students uh, that were taken on in the first year. And then by the second year, third year, there'll be less and less uh so only 27 uh -huh. were accepted not very many uh, at all uh but it's it's interesting to note that the Sretinsky seminary the, the Sretinsky monastery complex uh it's it's expanding it's growing yes. and it has been growing since uh the early 1990s when the collapse of the Soviet Union and the government started returning church property back to the church and amazingly all the buildings around the uh, monastery, the seminary, you would have seen them. Do you know who owns and who operates those buildings around the seminary? I have a suspicion, but I will not, I will. Well, tell us, what's your, for you to what, tell, what, no, 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 tell me, what's your suspicion? Uh, you know what? I'm going to withhold that suspicion. I'm going to, I'm going to let you tell me. But that, that's even more suspicious if you were told that. <laughs> you might as well just I say don't... it. Um, well, look, uh, is it your doubt? Just kidding. No, um, is it Putin? Well, no. it used to be called the KGB. Oh, so it's the FSB. Now, yeah, the whole the whole street, Lubyanka, the famous uh, big um, yellow building there where Felix Jirinsky's, uh monument used to be. They removed that now. Funny, he was actually also a seminarian, the head of oh. the NKVD. Uh, Joseph Stalin was also a seminarian. Uh, he mm -hmm. left seminary after three and a half years. Yeah. And most of oh. the Russian uh, Soviet uh, leadership and a lot of the generals and the marshals and the uh, members of the Politburo, they were actually educated in the seminaries. Honestly, I was very surprised to hear that throughout that entire time, those churches were not open to the public and they weren't being used for prayer services. I don't know. Why, why would you shut down a church? Like it doesn't, it didn't, makes sense to me i actually asked that question like why wouldn't they allow services mm. there during the soviet union you know by 1943 joseph stalin realized that he needed the church to help support the country's war effort and in 1943 uh, when they were fighting the germans it was uh, an all-out war the great patriotic war and they needed everything they uh they could throw into the battle including uh lifting up the spirit of the people using the church and some some commentators say that stalin had a uh a, a, you could say you got to use the right word here but he, he he appealed to the church for the right reasons whatever the reasons were when stalin said we need to elect a patriarch because there was no patriarch the church authorities said we can't and stalin said why he said well we need a minimum a minimum amount of bishops to actually hold these elections. Stalin wanted a patriarch, he wanted to bring the church back. And they said, he said, where are all the bishops then? And they said, well, Stalin, you executed most <laughs> of them, and there's a couple left in the gulags. And he said, good, 
send military transport planes, go to the gulags, grab them and bring them all to Moscow. So imagine in 1943, you're in the middle of a war, you're fighting the Germans, and you allocate military transport planes from Moscow. This is a big shortage, right? This is, they, I can't believe that he did this, but they flew to the gulags and they picked up these bishops who were sitting in gulags for uh, years and years and years, and they brought them out of captivity, elected a patriarch, and suddenly reopened churches, reopened seminaries, reopened the monasteries, and uh, the country took a pivot towards the church and orthodoxy again. But then, of course, Nikita Khrushchev, when he came to power after the death of Stalin, and he cracked down again, uh, cracked down onto the church once again. So the church uh, that you I visited. I turn them back to the gulags because I've been to those gulags and it was brutal. I was I wasn't actually in the gulag, but I have been to the gulag. I see. I see. Well, uh, that church that you visited, it's at Sretinsky Monastery, the the massive church that was built in two thousand and thirteen. You're quite right. It's actually built in honor of the new martyrs of Russia. So it's actually built in honor of all of those uh, people, including the Tsar's family, which are revered in Russia as martyrs. Uh, it's considered that they died for the faith, they died for the country. The Tsar had the opportunity to leave. The British offered him the way to leave. He could have uh, left the country, abandoned his people. He accepted the fate that was awaiting him. He's considered a martyr by the Russians and very well revered. And uh, his memory and his legacy and uh, his, uh, you could say, authority in a good sense of the word, the Russian word for authoritet is a little bit different to authority in English. Uh, it's actually on a revival in Russia. There's a big push now back towards the monarchy, towards the Russian Empire. Uh, did you notice any of that when you were there in Moscow? Honestly, only in the paintings in that church of the martyrs, because the whole royal family is there, including the youngest boy who was brutally executed, um, as well as all the daughters as well, who were also executed. Uh, other than that, I haven't uh, fully noticed uh, any push towards monarchy because, you know, Russia is a republic and I think um, people are happy with how it's being run at the moment. Well, when I mean push towards a monarchy, a resurgence of patriotism, a resurgence of uh, bringing back, making Russia great again. Oh, yeah, for sure. They want to bring Russia back. Uh, and go back to its roots, you know, uh, wash off a lot of what the Soviets uh, did. And I, I guess how you may have even, I may have even seen examples of the old flag uh, with the imperial symbol on it a lot, actually. So that would be, uh, you were right, you know, a pushback to the monarchy. The, uh, the, 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 yellow, the yellow double-headed eagle yeah. flag and the white, black and exactly. yellow empire flag. It's a pretty flag, must admit. Well, I have a soft spot for uh, all three Russian flags, the white, blue, red flag of today, the Russian Federation, the in fact, even the Soviet red flag, because it represents a very powerful country, which was absolutely sovereign and autonomous in its decision-making process uh, in every way. And I really yeah. long for that. Uh, Actually, a lot of people, especially in the Middle East, long for that. The return of the Soviet Union. Yeah, because, you know, it, it it was a counterbalance to the United States and Zionism a lot of the time. I mean, in Syria, in 1973, the Soviet Union, the military of the Soviet Union fought alongside Syrian soldiers. And, we, you know, it was not, I, we haven't seen Russia return to the strength that it used to be at as a counterbalance to the, you know, the empire, the U.S. empire. Well, this is this conversation is taking an interesting direction. A few key words: U.S. Empire, Zionism, Soviet Union, Middle East. It's getting spicy, but we're going to have to <laughs> chop to a quick break. Keep listening uh, for the rest of uh, Syrian Girls' thesis on all of those topics coming right up on TNT Radio. Don't go away. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Well, the folks at Saturday Night Live were at it again last weekend, practicing their not-so-subtle anti-Semitism. This time, the mocking of Republican Elise Stefanik, who questioned three university presidents about Jewish genocide at a hearing. Ms. Stefanik, thank 
cute chairwoman. Now, I'm gonna start screaming questions at these women like I'm Billy Eichner. Anti-Semitism, yay or nay? I'm sorry, what? Yes or no is calling for the genocide of Jews against the Code of Conduct for Harvard. Well, it depends on the context. <gasps> what? <laughs> that can't be your answer. And more. And keep in mind, if you don't say yes, you're gonna make me look good, which is really, really hard to do. So I'll ask you straight up. Do you think genocide is bad? Remember I said SNL was at it again. This was 2021, Michael Shea. Israel is reporting that they vaccinated half of their population. And I'm gonna guess it's the Jewish half. <laughs> A year prior, Shea said that the winner of the horrific uh, Miss Hitler contest was Miss Israel. He also, uh, when Donald Trump was president, by the way, called Donald Trump a bitch and a cracker. Very nice stuff. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT Radio Vision. Asthma is a growing problem, especially among children. Asthma affects the quality of life for millions like me every single day. My name is Chris Draft, and I have asthma. And I've spent more than a decade in the NFL tackling asthma on and off the field. Join me and the EPA in helping people control their asthma. Asthma is a lung condition that can be controlled through medication and by avoiding things that can make it worse. Three steps are the solution to controlling asthma. Step one, talk to a doctor. Step two, make a plan. And step three, get rid of things that can make it worse. Asthma can be tackled. For more information on asthma, log on to epa.gov asthma. Focused on the facts. The Aussie Cossack. On today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, every time that word pops up, the Z word, Zionism, uh, ears prick up, censorship, uh, operators get nervous, and people uh, prepare for something which is very controversial. This is something which is being talked about all over the world. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to retain a neutral position or try to retain a neutral position. I know that Syrian girl, my guest, is certainly not neutral at all in this regard. Uh, she's very staunch and very tough when it comes to calling out Zionism, but TNT Radio is the home of free speech. And if you disagree with anything that I'm saying tonight, or in fact, indeed, uh, what my guest Syrian girl is saying, you can ring up right now on 1-800-670-310. There's no point in complaining sitting on the couch at home when you can join the conversation on 1-800-670-310 and have your say, Syrian girl, what is the update from the Israel-Palestine conflict? What's going on? What's the latest? I saw a video yesterday of a Palestinian journalist being uh, bashed and beaten, uh, shocking scenes. Uh, and the Israeli soldiers realize they know that they're being filmed on camera and, and they have no shame at all. Uh, I saw a video also of uh, Israeli troops inside a mosque using the speaker system, the indoor speaker system, uh, conducting blasphemy. You, you, you may support Islam, you may not support Islam, you may not like them, you might like them, you might not like Christians, you might... You might like Christians, but you got to respect the places of worship. There's a certain sanctity, whatever religion you are. You don't barge into someone's place of worship and defile it like that. What, what do you make of all this that's going on over there? Well, Israel is basically the Jewish ISIS. So, you know, we're seeing scenes like the, them defiling a mosque in the same way you might see ISIS defiling a church we have during the war in Syria. You know, and a lot of people point to those uh, videos. Of course, the Syrian army fought back. Uh, those terrorists, and they would like to fight back the Israeli terrorists as well. And I find a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we saw back then, you know, you say you, uh, people might not like Islam, etc. You know, at the time when ISIS was at its worst, uh, people were very careful about not being Islamophobic. And sometimes being against ISIS was also conflated with Islamophobia. And I see kind of the same tendency where being against Israel or being against Zionism is often conflated with anti-Semitism. And, you know, these buzzwords are oftentimes like Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. They are used to control speech. And I'm glad to be here uh, in on the radio station that promotes free speech, you know, in order to for me to express what I believe. And, you know, what is Zionism essentially? Zionism is in the same way that ISIS thought that God was a real estate agent and he deemed the land of Syria and Iraq as 
the land of like the Islamic caliphate of Wahhabism, the same thing can be is exactly of uh, the Israelis. They think that uh, you know their religion dictates that they are belong the land of the Levantine people, which is my people, like my ethnicity. Uh, belongs to them and they should kick us all out and kill us all and take our land because then the messiah will come and the apocalypse will begin and which is exactly also what isis believed they believe the same thing so, so you're you're certain that with well, the events that are taking place now are of an apocalyptic nature and uh there's a certain prophecy being played out am i correct well i don't I don't necessarily agree by that or believe that, but this is what they, the Zionists, want and believe. Um, in fact, they have like three cows. They have this thing where if they can collect three red cows and slaughter them, then they can rebuild the third temple and the apocalypse will begin. And apparently they've found these three red cows. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know that much detail about it, so I don't want to get into it. But there are these messianic apocalyptic ideas behind Zionism. Um, which I, I look, I think maybe it could end up being apocalypse, but if it is, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, essentially. Um, and we are facing like what could be a world war uh, because right now, you know, Israel has nuclear weapons and they have something called the Samson option, which everybody needs to look up where if they go down, they're going to take the whole down, world down with them with nuclear weapons. But uh, we're getting like too far ahead of the game. We're not there yet. So maybe we can focus back on what's happening right now. Okay, so in, the, in that context, why is America pushing Australia to send a warship into the Red Sea? And what risks uh, does Australia face if it agrees, if it gives in to America's requests, forward slash demands, forward slash orders depends on how you look at it some people think this is an order some people think it's a request it's certainly not a polite request uh when it's a public request i mean a request would be uh a request from a general to a general or a president to a prime minister but i think this is about virtue signaling this is about my opinion this is about america forcing australia to visually outwardly show that it's involved put an australian warship in harm's way What's your update uh, from the Red Sea? What is going on in that stretch? I mean, it's an active war zone. It's the currently like in all international waters. It's the most active war zone there you you can have. There's ballistic missiles flying into ships and sinking them. There's cruise missiles hitting ships. There's uh, helicopters taking over ships. So I don't understand why. What does this have to do with Australia? If you look at the Red Sea on the map, it's got it's nowhere near Australia. So why Australia specifically? Like, why can't they ask anybody else? Why can't they ask the UK, for example? Uh, you know, why, why can't they ask Israel? They seem to be very good friends with Israel. Um, so they, you know, it, it, it's just odd that Australia has to be stuck with this request and put its ships in harm's way. To what end? To like, to what benefit? And you know, people don't even understand what's happening in the Red Sea or why it's happening. Um, so I, maybe people should at least be allowed to understand that before, like, Australian government ships off the Navy to the Red Sea. Well, breaking news on, on this topic, the Australian Navy has declared its readiness for uh, the Red Sea deployment <laughs> pending the government's approval. So the Navy is admitting that it's ready. There was speculation that the Navy simply does not have the capability and today the navy the royal australian navy has confirmed that yes it can deploy a ship uh, we know that the navy has been i don't know what uh, the ship's supposed to do like well the navy's been plagued with all sorts of problems at any given time half of our ships or submarines are in repair or they're unusable they're sitting in dock so the navy is certainly saying well we can do it it's about the federal government so it's a case of hot potato of responsibility now the federal government is being put on the spot, not only by the United States, but also by the Australian Navy. The United States is requesting uh, this uh, assistance in light of attack, in light of attacks by uh, Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. So it's very clear that this ship, this Australian ship, if it was to be deployed, it would be heading into danger. And is this really uh, the best thing for Australia to be doing? What's the plan B? What, what happens? 
the reason why they want to send the Australian ship in the first place is to sh- not because the Australian ship is going to be able to do anything. It, it can't. I, and if the American ships can do nothing, Australian ships certainly not going to be able to do anything. But it's more like, oh, look, we have friends, we have allies. Like it, it, it's it's more symbolic. But for that uh, symbolism, what you're going to have is a cost of the ships being under threat. And what is the purpose of the ships to fight to? Because the Houthi rebels or like the uh, Ansarullah, the Yemeni armed forces now we're pulling it because there's not really any other armed forces in Yemen um, are taking over these ships. They're stopping the ships from crossing that strait in the Red Sea for a very specific reason. And it's not every ship. It's all the ships that are related to Israeli uh, uh, supplies. So there's preventing- You're exactly right. I'll stop you there. The Yemeni armed forces have indeed declared that no ship of any nationality that's connected to Israel or an ally of Israel or any Israeli or Zionist, they call it, entity, is not allowed to pass and those ships will become targets. So this really is a case of throwing Australia under the bus, throwing an Australian ship in harm's way. Let's just take a moment, for example, for Israel. So let's take a moment to appreciate that these ships uh, would contain hundreds of Australian uh, sailors, servicemen, men and women uh, serving in the Navy. Does anyone care about their welfare? What backup do they have? Why only one ship? If you're going to send ships, well, why don't you send 10? Why don't you send your Air Force? Why don't you deploy everything? Why don't you put in uh, lifeguards and lifesavers and Wi-Fi and psychologists and counsellors and uh, gender uh, officers and everything else the army usually brings with it. Why are we just sending one ship? One ship is a sitting duck. This is a disaster. This is a a plan that is uh, set to fail. And this story is gaining uh, speed. And it's uh, there's no surprise that it's trending on top in politics on X in Australia. of all the issues in the world, the Red Sea is now becoming a focus. So, if you, well, if you, they're asking us to take sides in a genocide, essentially, and they want us to be back the side that's doing the genocide. That's and you know, recently the in the United Nations, Australia actually voted uh, for a ceasefire, um, and uh, you know, there was a ni- uniting for peace resolution where uh, basically the United States veto was bypassed. And Australia made itself clear that it doesn't want a genocide in Gaza. So, but now they're asking Australia to go against what they said at the United Nations and 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 back, put in the navy to support Israel while they're they're, they're bombing eight thousand children in Gaza. So why 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 would we do that? Why why haven't the Australian people been consulted whether they want to send a single ship? in order to pay lip service to a genocidal terrorist state. Well, at the same time, uh, as many Australians as yourself are raising concerns about this, uh, the Greens, again, I'm not a fan of the Greens, but uh, David Shrewbridge has got it right. He has uh, spoken very strongly against uh, this proposal to send an Australian ship. Unfortunately, Liberal and Labor and the Nationals are completely supporting uh, this idea. Uh, Nationals MP Keith Pitt even went so far as to say that uh, Australian uh, warships are fighting warships and Australia's Navy and Australia's defence personnel are there to defend this nation and its interests. If it is in our interest to provide that support, well, they should be provided. These are critical and important decisions. It's a conflict zone. We should be out there with our allies because guess what? They are our imports and our exports as well, end quote. What do you make of that position from Nationals MP Keith Pitt? Well, you know, it's not very nationalistic to be subservient to another state. And let's not forget that these are the same kind of words that got us into the war in Afghanistan and, uh, you know, in the war in Iraq as well uh, for a short stint. But what did these wars result in? They resulted in refugees that eventually came to Australia and, uh, you know, like, and they destroyed nations and destabilization which eventually read, uh, led to the rise of ISIS. And it's like a broken record. I mean, we can't, like, these establishment right-wingers, like in the liberals and in the, and in the nationals, 
they don't really represent the right wing or conservative Australians that are done with these foreign wars that have nothing to do with Australia or what Australians want. So, you know, like it's not in our interest. And uh, I, I would uh, actually think what's going on is it's an interest of the Zionist lobby, which controls a lot of right wing uh, liberal voices in Australia, unfortunately. That is the reality that we're facing. And somehow we have to exfiltrate them from our representatives or we have to have some kind of alternative that bypasses them because we're done with these wars. Every single time we have to be dragged into war by the United States. And since when have the liberals, like since the pandemic, have we not learned that the establishment, whether they be labor or liberal, are completely not on the people's side? Well, it's, it's much more than virtue signaling that the Albanese government is a professional actor at. This is a serious situation. The Iranian defense minister has declared that the Red Sea is under our control and no one can maneuver in it without our permission. Yemen has surprised uh, the world with a sudden power surge in the region. It's left uh, the Western world, including uh, the US, the UK, the Saudis and Israel baffled because the <laughs> Yemenis are not mucking around. These are well-armed well-trained, well-motivated, very serious fighters. Um, with two minutes to go to the news, uh, what is your final uh, message to the Australian government uh, regarding the, the possible deployment of Australian Navy ships to this area? You know, these Yemenis are so wiry and skinny, and it's just people really underestimate them, but uh, they are something else. You know, they fought a war and a siege for like eight plus years uh, against Saudi Arabia and are something else. You know, they fought a war and a siege for like eight plus years uh, against Saudi Arabia. And now Saudi Arabia has given up on fighting them. And now who's left to fight them? I mean, like the United States is going to declare war. I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, there's pretty much nothing that can be done and Australia is just going to be putting itself in harm's way because the Australian boat is not going to intimidate them, it's not going to stop anything, uh, it's not going to do anything. So what is the point? Uh, my message is, you know, this could be even worse. What happens if that Australian ship gets sunk? What is the react? What is the game plan? The blood, the blood will the be on, the blood will be on the hands of Albanese and those people who want to go to war. And I've said this before. If people in Parliament are calling on Australians to be sent to war zones, they should lead by example. They should go, their children should go, and they should go, and the parliamentarians should go before you send yeah. our diggers overseas. This is a hot topic. People are tuning in from all around the world. Syrian girl, I'm going to have to stop you there. Running out of time. We've got to go to the news. We've got people waiting to take calls in the next hour. Have your say. Call us now from the United States and Canada. 1-888-201-6425. From Australia, 1-800-670-310. Back after the break with the Aussie Cossack on TNT Radio.